Well, we are going to keep going in this book of Proverbs, laying out the way of wisdom for God's people in everyday life. And last week, we tried to kind of set the foundation for this of saying, regardless of your life stage, regardless of uh, circumstance or what have you, we, we all wake up in the morning with a need and desire for wisdom. And we defined wisdom from Proverbs chapter 1 as um, growing in the understanding and application of righteousness and justice and equity. And then if you remember, if you weren't here, we, we kind of traced this through and said that the way of wisdom points to and leads to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the, the personified wisdom of God. And specifically, Christ crucified serves as the kind of apex of the wisdom of God, making, um, as Tori just sang, she basically just sang last week's sermon, um, make, making foolish the wise of the world and making the foolishness of the cross the wisdom of God. Uh, which kind of means this when we kind of get down to the ground floor, uh, that all people in the world are capable of doing wise things uh, by God's common grace. Uh, but you cannot biblically be a wise person unless you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, uh, of repenting of our sin and, and believing in the life, death, and resurrection of the Son. And, and, and so Proverbs exists to point us to Jesus, uh, that we don't, we don't kind of find it on our own. It's, it's grace. It's revealed to us. We are made wise. And then from there, we are equipped to grow. So we are made wise in Christ, and then we're equipped to grow in this wisdom as we pursue Christ and mature him in our life. And so um, that was kind of all last week, the kind of foundation for this whole summer series. And now, uh, week by week, we are going to take just certain topics that the book of Proverbs talks about in abundance throughout. And, and, and just kind of week by week, kind of shift into different topics. And, but before we introduce uh, what we're going to talk about this week, um, I, I want to just, again, highlight and spotlight that a, a series on Proverbs, a series on wisdom, is not just a mental exercise. It's not just to make you smart. It's not to just build up kind of knowledge for the sake of having knowledge, but it's to affirm that all, all cultures and all places across history have relied on proverbial sayings, short sayings that express widely held beliefs in that culture. So if you go back into ancient history, um, Israel is not the only culture that has a quote-unquote book of Proverbs. Um, all cultures in that time kind of have these kind of sayings that they collect and they kind of collectively know. Um, Proverbs are uh, merely sayings that capture deeper meanings that teach and shape our lives. And so I actually went online list last week, and there's this uh, website. It, it says 52 cultures and 52 Proverbs. And it's just this long list of all these cultures across the world and one saying that has gotten kind of attached or kind of flowed from that culture. Uh, so let me just share a few. Um, and, and this is, I am at the mercy of believing this website is correct. Um, <laughs> But this is a Swedish proverb. Shared joy is double the joy. Shared sorrow is half the sorrow. A Kenyan proverb. A man who uses force is afraid of reasoning. A West African proverb. I love this one. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. A Latin proverb. Still waters run deep. You'll be thinking about that tonight when you're laying in bed. How about this? A Spanish proverb. Whoever gossips to you will gossip about you. 
These are sayings that represent deeper meanings that tell a story about life, and we all have them. I mean, if you just think in our current modern-day culture, think about how many sayings you have in your brain that you don't even realize. Uh, Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Hope for the best, prepare for the worst. A picture is worth a thousand words. Two wrongs don't make a right. We could go on and on. I think we would all be shocked at how many sayings you actually have in your brain that you go, yeah, yeah, everybody knows that. What are these? These are short, proverbial sayings that our culture widely agrees on, that shapes the way we live. So all that to say this, um, if the church is going to neglect the book of Proverbs, it's going to be to their detriment. This is God's Holy Spirit-inspired, perfect proverbial sayings that should shape the life of not just the culture, but a church that is global, that we share for the flourishing of God's people in any number of topics. We ne- if we do not read Proverbs, we neglect it at our own detriment. So this morning, the topic that we are going to tackle is work. The way of wisdom with our work. I imagine there's more than a few in right now thinking, Pastor, I have worked all week. Today is my day off. And we're going to talk about work. It's awesome. You're going to look at your spouse or somebody you're with and say, I knew today was the day to go to the beach. And this, this was the day we should have gone to the beach. Why are we here? Um, doors are locked. You're not going anywhere. And, um, but the way we think about work is extremely important because as we're about to see, not only the book of Proverbs, but the whole Bible has a lot to say about work. And then just from a practical standpoint, it's vital for Christians to have the right mindset on something we spend so much time doing. So work uh, in the Bible is not just this kind of nine-to-five job, as we'll see. It's far more expansive than that. But just for the sake of illustration, let's say a 40- to 45-hour work week for the majority of your adult life. If you kind of do the math, you will spend nearly half of your waking adult lives working. So Christians need to know how to think about, how to approach work, because we spend so much time doing it. And my hope, by the end of this sermon, that that's not a depressing thought, because it really does not have to be. In fact, it could even be a good thing that we are called to work so much. So just a reminder on how we're approaching Proverbs, we're, we're going to have kind of a, a launch verse on a topic that then, uh, and then extract all different Proverbs throughout uh, the, the book and kind of filter it into a sermon. So like I've, I've kind of combed through Proverbs, kind of just studying, trying to get immersed in it, and aggregating all the different principles about work and trying to compile a sermon. We'll see how it goes. You can tell me after. Um, but here's kind of a verse that I think is going to just set the stage for us when it comes to work. It's Proverbs 27. Verse 18, whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who guards his master will be honored. What's going on there? Let's unpack it. We're going to kind of first kind of look at some, some principles of work. And so a, a kind of first general question that we just kind of need to ask and assess is how do you, how do you view work? If I randomly took 10 people from around the room and brought them up here in a line and just said, how do you view work? Talk about work. My guess is we're going to get way different answers based on who we ask. Uh, um, So I think just to start, to make sure we have kind of definitions right, um, work is not just jobs that get a paycheck. Um, We tend in our culture to elevate paid work 
and diminish unpaid work, don't we? Like, paid work is really work. That's, and then the other stuff's not really work. But, but the Bible really makes no distinction between the two. Uh, one common way just to, that, that, um, that we kind of view it just in our culture is that if you were to ask a man or a woman, hey, do you work? If they, let's say, stay home with the kids, or stay home dad, or stay at home mom, they would answer, no, I don't work. I, I, I stay home with the kids. And anybody with kids knows it is far more work to stay home with the kids than to go to work. All right? And, and, and so you, you talk about any kind of life stage, even if kind of you're empty nester but not working. You're, what are you filling your time with? What are you committing yourself to? It might be... Um, some case of volunteer work, something in a community, something in your church. You are in retirement. So that means you're done working. You're just changing your work. So, so work is not just getting a paycheck. Um, but beyond that, um, there, there's a couple ditches we need to avoid. Um, and I think that is very common in our culture that gets immersed and pulled into the church. Um, first is to work, see work as a, just a necessary evil. It's not really good in and of itself. Um, you, you just kind of have to do it. It's a means to an end to live. And so we work so that we can get the money to do the really important things in life or the really purposeful things in life. Um, the kind of Christianese language is that we work so we could accomplish God's greater purposes for us. So work's a necessary evil. That's one ditch that we need to avoid. The, the other ditch, the other end of the spectrum, is work being viewed as your primary identity. You find your utmost joy in the title that you have. And people who love their job want to be known for their job. And the status and the credibility and the money that comes from it. And, and so oftentimes, I've talked about this before, but if you meet somebody new, generally one of the top three questions are what? What do you do? And people who love their jobs are just waiting for that question. Like, like just, just ask me. I just want to tell you what I do for a living because it's awesome. And if they don't ask, I'm going to find a way to get this into the conversation. Because I find all of my joy in this work that I do. And so if those are kind of two ways to avoid, well, what is the right way then to view work? And everything Proverbs says, and if you comb through it, you're going to see a lot that talks about it. Um, but everything in Proverbs flows from the first two chapters of the Bible. The first two chapters of Genesis, where we see that the dignity of work is one of the first truths God spoke into creation. Um, you can even kind of go back further than that. You start with the fact that in the act of creation, and even using that word, God is creating. God is working. God is the first worker in the universe. And then he um, sets out this creation, and he has this man named Adam in the garden, the only aspect of his creation that was made in his own image. And in Genesis 2.15, you don't have to turn there, uh, but Genesis 2.15, we read this. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden, look, to work it and keep it. So the way of wisdom with our work affirms, number one, work is good. Work is good. The biblical definition of work, rooted in creation, is a God-ordained mandate to cultivate and keep creation. That's what work is. A God-ordained mandate to cultivate and keep 
creation, and most notably, it happens before sin enters the world. Genesis 3.15, things go wrong. This is Genesis 2.15. So work, not part of the fall, the toil and the difficulties of work is, which is why in the book of Proverbs, you will never see work casted in a negative light. It's really kind of interesting. You kind of just work your way through all the proverbial things. Work is never casted in a negative light. We read that uh, Proverbs 27, 18, whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit. He who guards his master will be honored. Proverbs 12, 11, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. Proverbs 12, 24, the hand of the diligent will rule. And on and on it goes. Number one, work is good. Number two, work exposes character. Here's a really important aspect that when you think about the Bible and work. You know what the Bible, it really does not care what you do. The, care, the Bible cares far more about how you work than what you do for work. Um, and when you kind of think about it, the idea of choosing a career, I get to choose my job, choose what I'm going to do for a living, that is a relatively modern idea. For the vast majority of history, certainly during the times where Solomon is writing, you did not choose your career. You did what your dad did. You did what your mom did. The family business was the only business. And the vast majority of it was very much an agrarian culture. So the most important aspect of work is the process of how you go about approaching work. It's not contingent on what you do. And I think in ancient pagan cultures, certainly in our modern-day secular culture, we flip it. We care way more about what people do, and we don't really care as much about how they do it. You do whatever you got to do, but what you do matters most. What you do is how you view yourself and often how you view others. Um, we know in ancient cultures, uh, certainly when you get the New Testament, kind of like ancient Greek culture, they looked down upon what we would consider blue-collar jobs. Like, it, that, that was kind of demeaning work. That was not dignifying. There was nothing dignifying about that. People in leadership were kind of thought leaders. They were never expected to actually do anything with their hands. And, and Proverbs just kind of really radically stands against that. Again, going back to 27.18, um, who is getting spotlighted? The worker of a fig tree and the guard for the master. Not the owner of the vineyard, not the master himself. Those working in those areas are the ones getting spotlighted. Those we would consider low-class jobs. Proverbs 14, 23, In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Proverbs 16 to 26, A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. So again, modern days, we rate jobs based on money and title, but in God's eyes, in the eyes of Christians in the church today, we should care more about integrity, motivation, and the process than what you actually do. And any work that does not inherently require you to sin to get the job done can be very dignifying. And ultimately, you are your most human when you live in this way, when you live as a, somebody who's approaching work with character, God has created for you for that. that. That is the first job he gave Adam as a man. And then, and then Eve comes in and gets the same kind of mandate. As a woman, their most human and their most dignifying aspect is when they are working to cultivate and keep 
God's creative order. That's number two. Work is, exposes character. Number three, work is God-glorifying. Work is God-glorifying. Um, there is no such thing as a higher calling. There is no such thing as a higher calling. All work is a calling because all work can and should be done to the glory of God. So when I, uh, in 2015, when I resigned my job in New York City to join the ministry here at Grace Church, you know, first I was the, the first person, my boss in like 60 years of working, ever heard somebody was leaving finance to go be a pastor. Like he just did not believe me. He's like, no, where are you really going? You know, I think I like went to a competitor. But oftentimes people will comment, like com- would commend me for like, hey, I'm just praise, like, praise God that you're taking a higher calling in your life leaving finance and going to be a pastor. And I think people were very well-intentioned in those comments, but I think they're a little misguided because it affirms this mentality that church work or missions work, that's spiritual. And financial work, that's secular. When in reality, to God, all work is spiritual. And God calls men into the ministry just like he calls men to go onto Wall Street and everywhere in between because all work is meant to glorify God. Um, Paul, I think better than anybody else in the New Testament, really takes this principle and just drags it into his letters uh, when he kind of affirms and encourages the church. Um, and he kind of gives this timeless principle um, that all work should be done as if you were serving the Lord. And, and he has a dramatic way of doing it in that he is writing to bond servants who were um, active members, and many historians think were probably a majority of church members in first century Ephesus. And so master-bond-servant relationship is loosely, um, I think, equivalent to employer-employee relationships today. There's a lot to talk about that, but no time. But just kind of loose illustration, master-bond-servant in Ephesians 6 is like employer-employee today. And listen to what he writes to the church in Ephesus. Verse 5, Ephesians 6. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So it's this kind of really strong exhortation that all your work, whatever it is, doesn't really matter what it is, should be done for an audience of one. Work hard, but don't work for your own glory. And so this is a corrective to those who um, both hate work and those who idolize work. Right, so so it's a, it's a corrective to those who just uh, like it's a, works always a grind, hate it, hate everything about it. I don't want to go. I think everything about it's terrible, and there's no motivation, there's no morale, there's no. He's saying, listen, the corrective is you do your job, whether or not it's your passion or not, to the glory of God. And it's a corrective to those who idolize their work who make it about a glory of themselves. So, so here's the thing. Here's a, like a really crucial point I want to get across this morning. Um, workaholics are not being biblical. Workaholics who are just all work all the time, no rest, I'm all in all the time. That's not what the Bible would say. Man, that person is, is just doing it right. 
Because in the, in the process of being a workaholic, they are sacrificing family, church, community. And they're not working for the glory of God. They're working as a primary motivation of the glory of self. And so hear me, being a workaholic is as sinful as being lazy. And a biblical view of work is going to dismantle both those with no work ethic and those with a workaholic ethic, and it rightly places work as a calling meant to glorify God. There's a woman, Rebecca McLaughlin, um, I think I'm saying that right. She wrote a book called Confronting Christianity. It just came out a few months ago. The staff is beginning to read through it uh, together. And she talks about early on how Christians should understand work as a calling more than anyone else. And she shares an illustration. I think it was like a French illustration. It wasn't hers, but she put it in her book. This little parable. She said three brick layers were asked, what are you doing? The first says, I'm laying bricks. The second says, I'm building a building. Third third says, I'm building the house of God. The first bricklayer has a job. The second has a career. The third has a calling. I was thinking about this and kind of extrapolating out to other uh, positions. I was thinking um, about the position of if you're a stay-at-home uh, dad or a stay-at-home mom, if somebody were to ask them on a Tuesday morning, um, what are you doing? The first would say, I'm feeding and taking care of kids. The second would say, I'm raising children. The third would say, I'm making disciples. The first is a job. The second is a career. The third is a calling. All work is God glorifying. Number four, work multiplies joy. Work multiplies joy. In the book of Proverbs, good work is not just about what you get as a result of it. It enhances what you can then give others. That we work for the glory of God, number one, and for number two, to bless others. That work enables us to be generous in deploying our talent, in deploying our time, in deploying our treasure for the building up of God's kingdom and blessing others. Proverbs eleven twenty four: one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. So there's a joy that goes out towards others, but it's also a joy that you experience yourself. It's the joy of gratitude because you're doing what God has designed you to do. And again, joy in work is not contingent on you necessarily loving your job. It's not you being overly passionate about your job, that that gratitude can come from the Lord. Because I fully understand, not everybody has an opportunity to be in a job that they love. But it does not mean they cannot have joy in it. And the antidote to grumbling at work is a gratitude of heart. When, when I was working in the city, um, especially in like the blistering cold winter, I tended to dread Monday morning. In fact, it started to ruin my Sundays because Monday was coming after Sunday. And so like, I couldn't even enjoy Sundays because like, Monday's coming. It's, it's always coming. And I have to commute into the city, and it's going to be cold, and I'm like, got to layer up. And, and I, I really just remember starting to kind of dread it, and I... I would vividly remember just getting, again, some just wise advice from other brothers and sisters in this church and um, from outside this church to just say, you know what you have to do? You have to pray gratitude into your heart. 
And, and so I, I vividly remember, it's almost a sweet memory now, as I look back, kind of dreading going into work, to just, just pray out loud, because when you're walking the streets of the city, if you're talking out loud, you're just fitting in, all right? So I'm, I'm just like talking to myself in the city. I'm just saying, God, thank you for this job. Thank you that I had to get up and put on pants this morning and go to work. I have the opportunity to do that. Thank you that uh, I have a platform where I could display your name and hopefully be a witness to you in any way that I can. Thank you that you're giving me some provision for my family. And thank you for a place where I can just try and give you the glory. And you know what? Like, it kind of worked. And I would encourage you, if that just sounds kind of mystic or that sounds kind of like um, too idealistic, to try it. The best antidote to grumbling is gratitude. And no matter where you're working, if you don't want to be there and you're hoping to get out, even like, well, you know what? Today you're going there. And to just pray this in your heart, that I want to glorify you and, and just, I, I dare you to try it and see what God just does in and through you to multiply your joy. Well, the overarching theme of Proverbs, which we saw last week, is, is this kind of way of wisdom contrasted with the way of folly. There's a way to live wisely, and there's a way to live foolishly. And so each topic in Proverbs has their foolish counterpart. And for diligence in work, the counterpart is the folly of laziness. In fact, if we were to aggregate all the verses in Proverbs on these two topics, we would find for every one proverb about diligence, there's about three for laziness. All right, so kind of a few things. What does Proverbs say about laziness? Number one, laziness seeks ease and comfort. Proverbs 21, 26, he says, The desired of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous give and does not hold back. Proverbs 19, 15, Slothfulness casts into deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. You see, a sluggard craves everything, but works for nothing. And there's an inordinate, almost unhealthy craving for ease, for comfort, for rest. That does not include work. And one way I think we just see this get exposed in our culture is a very unhealthy view of retirement. And it's an idol for so many. And it kind of gets pulled into the church where we think we will experience ultimate joy when we're retired. And so let's work hard now and let's work faster now and better now so we can retire sooner. And the reality is that a retirement from a career is not the same as the retirement from work. We, in the opportunities where we can retire from getting a paycheck, can redeploy ourselves to unpaid work that maintains purpose. So if you look at statistics, it's really no question that depression rates and suicide rates increase after retirement. Because people get there and they think, I've been working my whole life for this, and I'm here, and here's the joy, and it's not as joyful as they thought. And their purpose starts to wane, and their will to live starts to drift. See, a lazy person does not love life enough to work for it. It doesn't care or experience the dignity of work, as that's been created in your being and how you've been wired and they have an unrealistic view of joy that's only possible where there is no work, and it's a topless mountain. Number two, laziness lacks integrity. Proverbs 26, 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. 
As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. For the sluggard, there's always an excuse. You know, I was going to go to work, but I looked out the window, lion in the road, can't go. It's not safe. It's not safe. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. And, 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 and we find it's, it's never our fault when we're in that situation. The blame's always elsewhere. You know, I would work, but I can't. And even if they do work, they don't follow through. Proverbs 19, 24. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game. He killed it, but now he won't roast it. Won't finish the job. And this, expo- this gets exposed in laziness. And, and for those of us thinking we're very driven people in Burn County, right, aren't we? To think like, yes and amen. Those people who don't work, they got to get it together. And, and they're just choosing to be lazy. And everyone often has a name of a person in their mind where like, they need this sermon. They're like, I'm sending this link to the sermon, like a sermon to them, right? Which, by the way, it's the most passive-aggressive move in the world. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Don't just like not talk to somebody and then send them a sermon that like it reveals everything you hate about them. All right? It just won't work out. That will not help your witness. But so it's not just for the people who just won't work and just are, are being slothful. I think, again, it's important to say that being a workaholic is a form of laziness. Being a workaholic lacks integrity because you refuse to do it the right way. And there's this unhealthy sense of control I have when I just work all the time. And it's usually a refusal to, um, to face the other aspects of your life because I'm just going to work all the time. And that's lazy. To just kind of do more, to glorify self and never rest. That is cheating the system that's making much of yourself. And that's not the way God designed it. Proverbs 24, I think, kind of hints at this. When it says, the slugger does not plow in autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. He was just seeking to get that harvest before autumn came, plowing, plowing, plowing. It does not come, and then by the time it's actually there, he won't be there. Working without integrity will eventually cost you in the end. And again, laziness, not about the job you have. It's about your approach to whatever job, whatever work God has called you to do. It's the how, not the what. Ultimately, last thing for laziness, laziness is destructive. Where work multiplies joy, Laziness is destructive, not just to yourself, but to others around you. Because again, God does not call you to work just for you. He calls you to do it for others. So you can be generous with time, treasure, and talent to bless others. Proverbs 18, verse 9. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Laziness destroys ourselves. There's a woman named Dorothy Sayers, really kind of fascinating um, 20th century author, she she wrote this about sloth. I I think I've shared this quote before, but it's dynamite. She says, quote, sloth is the sin which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there's nothing it would die for. Well, as we wind down We see the principles about work. We see the principles about laziness. How can we work well? When it comes to working well, how can we do it? Well, we've seen throughout the sermon that work is not just about what we get. It's a blessing that gives, right? So Genesis 2.15, God commissioned Adam and Eve to work and keep the land. And as a result, creation flourished. But then you go to Genesis 3.15. And we see how Adam and Eve chose foolishness over wisdom. They chose laziness over diligence and ultimately chose to glorify themselves over God. 
and they disobeyed the Lord. They sinned against his good and right command, and as a result, destruction ensued. The creation was fractured, and this prone uh, to act foolishly was, was passed along the generations. In the church, we call it a sin nature. It's interwoven into the nature of mankind, the desire to rebel against God's word, to choose our way over his way, claiming to be wise, Paul said in Romans 1, to become fools. And in his infinite wisdom and grace, God sends his son, Jesus Christ, into this fractured world to atone for the sin of Adam and all those who came after him. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. He says, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You know, Jesus came and had a calling. Jesus had work to do when he took on flesh to work and keep the creation, and he saw it through by going to the cross and dying for the sin of those who would believe in him. Because in reality, we all want to see ourselves as the ones who was in that working group and not the lazy group, but sin makes us lazy. Sin either has us refuse to live in the way we've been designed, or we live it, but we don't give glory to God, we give glory to ourselves. And the cross is the place where laziness is exposed, and it's the place where our laziness is atoned for. And for those who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus, we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Um, I've been reading a lot of Charles Spurgeon lately. You can probably tell by my quotes just who I'm reading. He says this about work. It'll be on the screen. He says, The new birth of a Christian has to be a work of pure divine grace. The sinful heart is impotent, unwilling, and wholly unworthy. In fact, Spurgeon declared, God's work of new creation is even more glorious than his original work of creation. After all, more than having to create out of nothing, in regenerating hearts, God must overturn that which is overly hostile to himself. For those who are regenerate in Christ by faith, his work initiates and fuels our work. And we can, by the power of the Spirit within us, work hard for the glory of God, whatever job that that is. And, and in doing so, redeem that original purpose that was in Genesis chapter 2 and experience it as really dignifying. This is the wisdom of work, that through Christ we can work well regardless of what we're doing. And this is the wisdom that only Christians can experience because only Christ followers work first and foremost for the glory of God. More than money, more than fulfillment, more than status. And so Christians in general, specifically Christians in Grace Church, we should be the best workers who neither hate work nor idolize work because we've been equipped by the Spirit within us to pour ourselves out to bless others through it, to serve as a witness to the world. And now this applies to you in whatever you do day in and day out. And so you kind of have to take this application home in a sense. You've got to carry it across the goal line. Because we're all at different careers, all different life stages. Some are staying at home, some are retired, some are just starting to work, some are going to be working soon. But we all in our different stories have a singular purpose that binds us together. And so by the Spirit within you, you can understand what's that look like in your day-to-day -to, -day to glorify God in what you do. 
And then as we close, we in the church, aside from all of our day-to-day work, also all have a common calling to contribute to the growth and flourishing of God's kingdom. In Genesis 2, it was the cultural mandate to work and keep the land, be fruitful and multiply. And then when Jesus died and rose again and he gathers his disciples as he's about to ascend into heaven, he gives them the new covenant mandate in Matthew 28. And he applies a fuller meaning to this mandate when he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So for the past 2,000 years in the church, in in addition to all our individual work, we are called together to partake in the work of making disciples, baptizing and teaching people to help them follow Jesus. And to this end, Jesus said, guys, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. So Grace Church, in all areas, let us trust God and get to work. There's a lot to be done. Let's pray.